In 2005, God gave me a prophetic word. He said, you are my storyteller because I am a storyteller. And at that time, I didn't really understand what that word meant or what, um, what implications it would have for my life. But you know, since that time, uh, God has made me his storyteller. It's, a, it's like almost uh, a calling on my life to tell God's stories. It seems to me that most Christians don't really realize that God cares about history and is in the center of our story, our collective story as a human race. He's at the center of our nations, and he cares about what happens in history. History is his story. We treat it as though it were our story, but it's his story, and he has already decreed how this history will end. He's got it all set out, and he's, he's ordaining things as we go along. Unfortunately, most historians are unaware of that and don't see him in history. And in fact, most historians have taken the stories of God's power and have removed them because they feel like those stories are irrelevant. So what I believe God has done for me is to use me to put the stories of God's power back in so that we can see the advance of the kingdom of God more clearly. Back in Daniel chapter 2, God gives his version of history in vision form. And it's the picture of a statue with four parts to it. The gold head stands for the Babylonian Empire. And then he says that that will be replaced by the silver torso which is going to be the Medo-Persian Empire, so that the Babylonians are going to be taken over by what is now the Iranians, the Iranians invading Iraq and taking it over and building an, an empire. And then there's going to be a bronze uh, um, belly and uh, torso, and that's going to stand for the Greek Empire of Alexander, and that's going to take over and become a worldwide empire. And then there's going to be a fourth empire that will be the Roman Empire, and it's characterized as legs of iron and feet of clay. And then God tells Daniel there's going to be a rock hewed out of the ground, and it's going to fall on this or, or crush and, and shatter these all of these empires to smithereens, and it is going to grow and become a mountain and cover the whole world. And we know that that, uh, that fifth uh, element, that fifth part of the vision, is going to become the kingdom of God. God is giving us in advance what he is eventually going to call the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a very real historical thing that has changed history, and it has transformed lives. And it's not just going to heaven after you die. It's 
a transformational kingdom that has power in it that gives people hope for change for the better. Okay, and so God is saying that at a certain point in history, he's going to introduce this, and that's going to be during the Fourth Empire, which is the Roman Empire. And so we all know that that's when Jesus was born, and that's when he preached, and that's when he uh, established and taught his kingdom, and his kingdom began to grow at that point during the Roman Empire, right according to what the prophet Daniel said. So the Roman Empire is where we want to begin our story. Uh, the, uh, just to give the background of, of this kingdom that God is going to bring. Um, the previous kingdom is uh, the Roman Empire. And, and the main thing I want to share with you is the fact that the Roman Empire did not just consist of people who wanted power. Um, it consisted of people who wanted to civilize the world and make the world better. And so through philosophy and through education and through proper government forms, we are going to show how to become civilized so that the barbarian hordes that are on the uh, exterior of the, of the empire, they can be taken over and they can be taught how to be civilized and life will be better. So the idea was to make life better. People should be trained how to be good people. And so the main uh, uh, vision for that or force for that was called um, philosophy, Greek philosophy. And the main kind of philosophy was called Stoic philosophy. Okay, there, there were branches of philosophy, but the one that dealt with human nature and and making people good, making people moral, was called Stoic philosophy. And so Stoic philosophy had gone into Rome and was a, a major element of hope in the Roman Empire. And so the idea was through Stoic philosophy, we're going to become better people and we're going to be able then to structure our government so that it can go out and spread this vision of rightness and goodness and order and make the whole world civilized. And this whole vision really got going with um, Julius Caesar, okay? There's going to be a Caesar, Caesar dynasty that begins with Julius Caesar. Um, Julius Caesar made his reputation by conquering barbarians and the main way that he made his reputation was by conquering the Celts of Gaul, okay, to the west. So this is in France, and he's going to conquer them um, by killing a quarter of the population of Gaul. That's a feature of Roman conquest that we often forget. And so this is the price that the people of Gaul are going to pay for becoming civilized and to be a part of the Roman Empire. But the people of Rome are going to be ecstatic over this. In other words, um, Julius Caesar is going to be one of the great military heroes of all time. And because of his reputation and his popularity, his is the lineage that is going to uh, prevail for 
the next um, 150, 100, 100 years, more, more than 100 years. And so the problem is that the Caesars um, that come after Julius Caesar are not going to be all that interested in becoming philosophical. So there's a problem there. Um, one of the strengths of the Roman Empire early on was its family. So husbands and wives having children and, um, and the stability of family life was going to be a big part of this picture of being civilized. But um, Augustus Caesar decided that since he was emperor, he could have other women besides his wife. And so that began to create um, an exception to the rule of husbands and wives raising children faithful to each other. Well, then you go to Tiberius Caesar, and Tiberius Caesar is going to, to take the thing one better. He's going to create a pleasure palace on the Isle of Capri, and there he's going to stock the place with pornography, with young girls, and with young boys. And there he's going to go and have himself some, some times of vacation, shall we say. And because that's what he wants to do, and he's the emperor, and he can do whatever he wants. Then he trains his successor, Caligula, in this, taking Caligula with him to Capri. Caligula learns those things, and he says, why should I go to the Isle of Capri? I'm going to do these things right in Rome. And so Caligula would have banquets, for example, and he would invite all the dignitaries of Rome to the banquets, and then he would go up to one of the wives, and he would uh, require that wife to go into the back room with him, and he would have sex with her, and then he would come out and bring her out, and he would describe what happened between the two of them while they were uh, in the other room, and people were horrified at this, but Caligula said, I'm an emperor, and I can do what I want, and this is what I want to do. And he was fascinated with his power to do whatever he wanted. And uh, then just to, to skip over the next emperor, Claudius, we're going to, to move on to the, the last of the Caesars, Nero. Um, the idea with Nero was that the, the Senate appointed to their next emperor, Nero, a philosopher. He said, we, we must not have another emperor like the ones we've been having. So he, they appointed one of the great philosophers of all time, Seneca, to personally mentor the next emperor, Nero. Uh, but Nero, um, like I say, he wasn't particularly interested in being philosophical, and so he decided um, to plan a whole big part of Rome that would be like a pleasure center for Rome. This would be like taking Capri and putting it right there in the center of Rome. Now, most of us know that the that the name Nero is associated with a great fire. 
Um, nobody knows exactly who set the fire, but historians know that Nero was not in Rome while the fire was being set, so he couldn't have set it himself. But the likelihood is that he set the fire, he had somebody set the fire, so that Rome would burn, and so that he would have a place to clear out and that he could build his pleasure center. And that's what happened. After the fire was done, he built the, the buildings, the brothels, and the baths, and all of the things that um, his heart desired for Rome. Um, and, and that was Nero's main legacy. And so what we see is that even though the, the, the Roman Empire had a vision for civilizing the world, what happened instead was the people at the head of Rome uh, became barbarians. In fact, they were barbarians already. They just never, they never became civilized. And so they, the power of Rome simply allowed the Roman Empire to become as barbaric as the other nations around. And that is the unfortunate tragedy of the Roman Empire. There were five emperors that were considered, are considered by historians to be good, and one of the best of them was Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, pictured here in the center from the film Gladiator, was himself a philosopher, and so he was the ultimate kind of emperor that the, the Romans had hoped for all along, and he was a good emperor. The problem was that Marcus Aurelius didn't like Rome and wanted to spend as little time in, in Rome as possible. And so he spent his time at the fringes of Rome conquering barbarians because he liked that part of it. But he knew what Rome had become. His son, Commodus, also knew what Rome had become and he loved being in Rome and wanted desperately to be emperor. Nobody knows whether he killed his father in order to secure his place as emperor. That's kind of what's implied in the film Gladiator. Nobody knows for sure, but what we do know is that he was the next emperor, and he was the worst of the lot. Actually, Hollywood doesn't really portray the vileness of this man. They almost kind of give him uh, a sympathetic um, coverage. Um, for example, Commodus would go out in public and he would carry a club. And uh, with that club, if there was somebody that he didn't like the looks of, he would just go up and club them to death. He would just murder them in broad daylight. And he, he did it because he was emperor and he could do whatever he wanted and that's what he wanted. And so this is the kind of thing that you have in Rome. Um, people are disgusted with what Rome has become, but they don't know what to do about it. There's no power to create anything better. Uh, all of the hopes of civilizing the world have completely dissipated, and now it's just become a power play. It's just become a game. And um, 
what I'm saying here is the Roman Empire was a hope and a vision that failed. And everybody in the empire knew that it had failed. Read Augustine's Confessions of St. Augustine, and you'll, you'll get a, a, a glimpse of this. People are disgusted with, with what Rome has become, but they don't know what to do about it. And they never did know what to do, what to do about it. But just at the moment when the awareness of that need created by human depravity and the evil that resides in human nature, just as that awareness was becoming pretty well general throughout the Roman Empire, God brought his kingdom into being through the person of Jesus Christ, of Yeshua, the Messiah. And all of those Old Testament prophecies, of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, they came into reality. They came into history with Jesus. So what we want to do is to show how the power of God invaded the world and began to spread out into the Roman Empire and create hope for people. This was a great thing because it was real. It, it, it didn't promise something and then prove to be a disappointment in the end. It created transformation. The kingdom of God is a transformational kingdom, and it changes people's lives. It changes governments. It changes school systems. It changes marriages. It, it improves life. It brings not curse but blessing. It trades curse for blessing. And people were discovering that. And so now we want to see how that worked and how that happened. You would think that Christians would have preserved the stories of the power of God in the early years. But unfortunately, we haven't. And so now it takes someone like me to dredge up the things that have been forgotten and present them to you so that you can see what really happened to advance the kingdom of God in those early days where so much has been completely buried uh, in uh, the the hidden mud of, of history. And so I'm excited about this opportunity to share these stories with you and to be um, a storyteller for God.